This is uh, case 83 from the Shoyoroku. Dawood tends the sick. One song's introduction. The whole body is being sickness. Vimalakirti is hard to cure. This grass is the medicine, and Madhushri uses it well. How can that compare to calling on a transcendent person and gaining peace and well-being? The main case. Guishan asked Dao, where have you come from? Dao said, I come from tending the sick. Guishan said, how many people were sick? Dao said, there were the sick and the not sick. Guishan said, the one who is not sick, isn't that you, ascetic G? Dao said, Sick or not sick has nothing to do with it at all. Speak quickly, speak quickly. Guishan said, even if I could say anything, it would have no relation. Hongji's verse. When has the wonderful medicine ever passed his mouth? Even the miraculous physician cannot hold his wrist. As though existent, he is basically non-existent. Utterly empty, he is basically not existent. Not perishing, yet born, he lives eternally. Alive without dying, completely transcending before prehistoric Buddhas. Walking alone after the empty eon, subsisting peacefully, sky covers, Earth supports. Moving on, the sun flies, the moon runs. So a few days ago, I chose to bring up this koan. I was debating between this and another koan. And I thought it would be good to talk about medicine and disease, or how diseased we are. And this morning, another mass shooting, 10 people got killed in California. When is it not fitting to talk about disease and medicine? During the third dedication of our morning service, the Inno chants, Shakyamuni Buddha, the great physician, turns the Dharma wheel, and so healing manifests throughout space and time. He guides all suffering sentient beings on the path of liberation, and he leads them to great joy. The great physician, he turns the Dharma wheel, and then at the end of the meal, we chant, as for the, the will of the Dharma, no thought is wasted over it. So what is it? What is turning? Or what do we need to turn? In the Buddhist tradition, Shakyamuni Buddha is deeply revered as the original teacher who guides others through his own realization, through his life, 
through his death and through the numerous teachings he left behind. So he's deeply revered, yet he's also seen as a regular human being, exactly like each of us, rather than a superhuman or a deity to worship. This is a very important aspect of Buddhist teachings, since the aim of a practitioner is to turn the attention inwardly and take full responsibility to personally experience what Shakyamuni Buddha experienced and to awaken to the same source as he did. And while it is the same path that we follow and the same source that we awaken to, the experiences along the way are unique and different for each of us. We are different. And this is what we have to work with, the uniqueness of our existence. There's no other way. There's no vicarious practice and realization. And so while we share the path, we need to, be, we need to fully respect the uniqueness of our own body our own mind, the circumstances we face, and of course the karma. And then learn to work with all of it without any comparisons and without conceptual goals. And so being the great physician, Shakyamuni Buddha will not prescribe some pills and tell you that you have to come back for a refill when you run out. He will not tell you to rely on him for, or anyone else for liberation. Instead, he will point at the root causes of the disease. And he will say that the medicine is within your capacity and your reach. But since the person we refer to as Shakyamuni Buddha is long dead, and the practice of Zen is not a scholastic exploration of history, it all must boil down to this moment to this very body, right? The body of a Buddha, as we chanted. To the person who's sitting on this cushion right now. Who else? We have to ask, who else will acknowledge the disease? And who else will turn towards the medicine? Is there anyone else? And when we do turn away from ourselves, and rely on someone else to do the work, or even admire someone else who has done the work. Does it work? What does it do? We can look at others and be inspired. We do. But we have to be inspired to turn inwardly by turning outwardly rather than to turn further outwardly. 
So the practice is universal in the most personal way. The introduction to this koan says, the whole body is being sickness. Vimalakirti is hard to cure. Now what is the nature of this sickness? How does it manifest? And what kind of challenges we face when we try to cure it? In our study exploration of the Shinjin Mei, we've been discussing our attachment to picking and choosing and the way it blinds us from seeing and experiencing life as it shows up, as it really shows up. Our perceptions, story-making, mind-chatter, and impulsive, often quite impulsive interpretations and judgments create an illusion of something solid, which we, of course, become vested in. And of course, you've heard this many times before. We've heard this many times before. What does that mean, right? So maybe similar words, maybe exact words. Maybe we've heard it, maybe we've read it a bunch of times. How do we hear? Do we really listen? Or do we think that since I've heard this before, I know what it is, or I know that I don't know what it is? Equally stagnant, right? I have no idea idea what this is talking about, or I get the point. What does it mean to become vested in? Right? We talk about nothing fixed. So to become vested in, to identify with, is to create. Is to create what we then complain about. So the, the complaining is actually a teacher for us. When we run into what we call, or we consider a barrier, We need to find the Lord within the barrier, the master within the barrier, because the barrier is showing us, or that feeling as if there is a barrier, is teaching us how the disease is born. We create, and then we get entangled. And then we keep creating further. So we've heard many times that this entity is no more than a fixed mental construct that is misaligned with reality, that keeps clashing with other people, changing circumstances, and keeps creating unnecessary suffering. We've heard that many times before. But what happens when we clash with reality? Which happens often. At the moment that we clash, at the moment that we feel this intense resistance, what happens then? Right? We have this 
incredible opportunity at the moment of feeling entangled, at the moment of the clash, we have an incredible opportunity to see, to see how it develops, that is the disease, and to see the opportunity to go beyond it or to dissolve it. At the same time, but often we think, well, I have problems and issues, and after they subside, I'll take time to work on dissolving. And it, it is a very natural way of thinking, but as long as I think in such a way, there is no dissolving, there's only formations and strengthening, the strengthening of formations. So this morning, when we started, I've encouraged all of us, well, I started by saying that we all came up here with stuff, with baggage, with story, with, with a before and after, right? We're very specific kind of before and after. And we, of course, we can't avoid bringing it with us wherever we go. But if we truly practice, right, to truly practice means to put it aside and to examine what else, is there any other way to sit on this cushion, right, other than being bogged down by what happened before or what I'm going to encounter later on or by myself, right, which is exactly the same thing, right, because if I don't go back to look at what I did or did not do, or ahead, forward, to look at what I want to do or would love to see, then, then something magical happens, actually. Right? Because if I don't go back or forward, I encounter a diseased-free me. Because it's not me. It's not the me that was or will be. Right? I got to go back. I got to go forward to re-encounter or reinvent myself. If I really, truly come back here, I will not see that. Because it is non-existent. And even that word non-existent is, could be a trap, could be like a glue trap. Right? So we have to see how we, when we hear such a word or we read such a word, non-existent, it's not negating you. It's negating what you think you are. It is actually affirming you in the most profound way. It is life-giving. But we are, since we are so deeply vested and identified with this mental construct, and because we see it as who we are, it becomes the only possible version of reality and the only possible version of me. And so it is difficult to cure because in most cases we don't even see it as a disease. 
We don't think, well, we think we have many problems, but we don't think that we are the problem. Right? I mean, often it's others with, which we, with whom we argue, judge, or shoot. Right? It's the same thing. There is an other, and the other, I, the other is the one I don't want for whatever reasons. How much I don't want this person, right, will basically lead to how atrocious my reaction will be. But it's the same thing. The disease is the same. So you may remember from commentary, uh, Shinjin Mei last Sunday, I quoted Mu Song and said, certain wise teachers have pointed out that despite all the claims to the contrary, most human beings don't really wish to see things as they really are. Because this truth is threatening to one's cherished structure of beliefs a threat to likes and dislikes that we have worked so hard to put in place. It's not just have, that we are working so hard to keep in place. And through which we gain our sense of identity. Again, there are many words to say the same thing, right? We only want to affirm our pre-existing ideas or prejudices about things, not deconstruct them. We say we want to experience liberation. We say it. And we are truthful. We are honest about that. But we say it while remaining blind to the creation of that which we want to free ourselves from. So on one hand, we want to do it. On the other hand, we are creating the barrier that stands in our way. So the wanting to do it does, I think, come from a deep place inside, inside us. And it, it, this is where bodhicitta is at, right? So it comes from a place that knows that there is another way. It's knowing without knowing that there is another way to be, that this is pointless. But there is something else there. There is another sense of entity or construct that feels very real. So we say illusory self. You know, it's, it's, we call it illusory self, but we don't experience it as illusory. I think we often feel we see reality as it is, as illusory. The upside-downness, right, of our way of seeing. So then he goes on to say, this is part of the root cause of dukkha, suffering, our sense of anguish and alienation. It is always there underneath, like a wellspring, whether we are consciously aware of it or not. 
And we're not aware of it in many cases. And through practice, we work on becoming more aware of the underlying wellspring, the wellspring of an ego. That's exactly what it does. It brings it up again and again and again. And then because we see it again and again, feel it and think it, it feels real. So if it feels real, it's not illusory. Because we rely on our thoughts and feelings, right? Another great way to see how self-concerned and self-centered we are. How do you know? I feel it. Right? I think it or I feel it, therefore I know it. How small-minded is that? Right? To say, well, I, feel, I know this to be true because my feelings are affirming that. On Tuesday, on Wednesday, well, my feelings are affirming something else. Then what? Then I have a problem, right? Because I don't know. Because yesterday, I thought it's like this. And then today, well, I don't know how it is. Another great teacher, right? Our feelings. They're teaching something. How unreliable, right? How, how unreliable it is for us to construct a sense of reality using changing thoughts and feelings. And then we say, well, this must be true. So one of the first things we, we talk about to teach, right, basic instructions for Zazen is learn to not follow your thoughts. Learn to not follow your, your feelings. And we stress again and again, this is not denial, this is not suppression. This is acknowledgement. This is recognition of thoughts and feelings as part of our existence as human being. But do not follow, it means do not use it to create anything, just watch, watch. That's it. Of course, we trust it, right? And this is another thing we talk about again and again and again, right? We trust. So we have to mess with that trust. That's where courage comes in. To mess with the trust. To step into what we don't trust yet or may not trust yet and learn learn to function without a fixed self whole body is being sickness we want to cure this how to cure i want to spend a few minutes on talking about that because some of you have not heard about Vimalakirti, if you knew. So Vimalakirti was one of, uh, one of the most 
deeply awakened, if not the most deeply awakened um, practitioner of the Buddha, follower of the Buddha, he was uh, non-ordained, he was a lay practitioner. And uh, at some point, uh, he was sick. And uh, the Buddha wanted to send, uh, he deeply appreciated him, and he, and he wanted to send one of his followers to go and check up on him. And there's a, there's a story about that, that he asked, one by one, he asked them to go and check up on Bhimalakirti, and all of those great bodhisattvas were afraid to go and check on Bhimalakirti because they were afraid of the way he would basically deconstruct their practice, right? He was deeply awakened and, you know, Dharma dialogue, Dharma combat, right? He would always come up on top. But he was always exposed what they would need to work on. So one by one, they, they refused. And then Manjushri ended up going. So he came in, we don't have to get into details of that story, but so he saw him there and Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, this illness of yours, layman, what form does it take? And he said, my illness has no form. It cannot be seen. It cannot be seen. I think you know, we see how the illness we see the symptoms, we see how it manifests, but we don't see the illness because we often don't see it as an illness. Because we think, well, this is the way I am. So Manjushri goes on to ask, is this illness seated in the body or is it in the mind? And Vimalakirti answered, it is not seated in the body, for it is apart from bodily form. And it is not seated in the mind, for the mind is a phantom-like thing. So Majushri goes on to ask, of the four major elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, to which of these elements does this illness pertain? This illness does not permeate or permeating to these four elements. And neither it is separated from them. Yet the illness of living beings arise from these four elements. So Majushri says, Layman, what is the cause of this illness? Has it been with you long? And how can this be cured? Then Vimalakirti replied by saying, This illness of mine is born of ignorance and feelings of attachments. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I am sick. And this is a deeply awakened person. If all living beings are relieved of sickness, then my sickness will be mended. Why? Because the Bodhisattva, for the sake of living beings, enters the realm of birth and death. And because 
She's in the realm of birth and death. She suffers illness. If living beings can gain release from illness, then the Bodhisattva will no longer be ill. Then Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, how should a Bodhisattva go about comforting and instructing another who is ill? <laughs> Vimalakirti replied, tell them about the impermanence of the body, but do not tell them to despise or turn away from the body. We don't negate. Tell him about the suffering of the body, but do not tell him to strive for nirvana. Tell him that the body is without ego, but urge him to teach and guide living beings. Tell him to use his own illness as a means of sympathizing with the illness of others, for he should understand their suffering. So that last line, right? Tell him to use his own illness as a means of sympathizing with the illness of others. For he should understand their suffering. So easy, right, to point at other people and say, they're wrong, they're bad, they don't know what they're talking about, they don't know what they're doing. I do. What does that do? We may speak of the Dharma in such a way too. I know more Dharma teachings. I am more awakened then. Right? So we take the Dharma and do something with it. Right? That has nothing to do with Dharma teachings. So we take what is there to help us awaken to sameness. And we use it as a way to push away others, to divide. So to sympathize, to look at other people, to look at madness too. And to look at our own madness, our own propensity for madness. Like, I, I get that. I get that. I know where this is coming from. Because I see my own mind. I see my own illness or propensity for home. The fact that I may know a little bit more about how to work with it doesn't make doesn't change anything when it comes to the disease and the cure. And if I do know a little bit more about how to meet that propensity or those propensities, then I need to be more understanding of others and then give myself to others. Mirror that. Because they mirror to me the illness, right? And I can mirror back the cure. Because both the illness and the cure are in each of us. It's not what we often do. Often we actually 
mirror the same. Right? We, we get that. We, we see it from another and we respond in a way that will accentuate that in the other. They act this way because they feel alienated and we push them away so they feel more alienated. Well, what's going to happen? They're going to do more of the same. They're going to go shoot more people. So then, Milakirti goes on to say that the illness is sprung out of deluded thinking, of being upside down, and of various attachments. This illness of mine is born out of ignorance and attachment. My disease, my restlessness, the feelings of inadequacy and alienation, my anger, my sadness, my fears, all of it is born of being attached and not seeing clearly. Being attached to my ideas, to my preferences, likes and dislikes, being attached to what I create, being attached to the one who is being attached. So he said not seeing clearly, but what is seeing clearly, right? So in Zazen, in Zazen is the practice of turning inwardly, totally immersing ourselves in deep practice of deep observation that allows us, allows us to see clearly or allows clarity to manifest. It's not even seeing clearly. Because even, even that is not quite true to say or the statement itself, seeing clearly. Because seeing clearly implies, again, the one who is seeing, and then what is being seen. So in seeing clearly, in this case, there's just clearly. And that clarity does not negate the passing clouds, or the storms, or the mess, or the chaos, or the suffering. So when we work with, and this is something people often ask about, right? When we, how do I meet intense emotions? How do I meet thoughts? And we can change the language. We can change the way we think about it. We can change the way we speak about it. This is very important that we change the way we speak about that to either ourselves or to other people. So when anger comes, there is just that. There is just an experience of anger. It's not more than that. The more than that is how I meet the arising emotion. The emotion does not come with more than just that. And the same with pain, inadequacy, sense of alienation, all of it. I'm not good or I'm good. I am. So we have to change the language. And you know, when we change the language again and again and again, little by little, something changes. It's not just one time or one period of zazen, obviously. But we have to keep doing it and keep doing it. And something happens. 
Please adjust your seat, your cushion if you need, or the way you sit. <clears throat> this is something that we see if you practice embodiment, right? Any practice of embodiment, Tai Chi, martial arts. If you do it, and people often say that, if you keep doing it, you keep doing keep doing it without giving it much thought or weight. No thought is wasted over it, right? No ounce of energy is wasted over it. You just do it, day in, day out. This is how magic happens. You just find yourself moving effortlessly through people. You find yourself, somebody comes to attack and you just move and something happens. You don't know how it happens, but you experience energy that is far greater than you can ever imagine. And it's not your own energy in, in the sense that you don't, it's energy that moves through you. And it's extremely powerful. And people often say, I don't know what happened, but I, I just felt something. I felt this immense power energy that, like a surge. And, and you feel relaxed. The arms relax. There's no tension. How is it possible? It's not possible. If you're doing it, it's not possible. If you try to do it, it's not possible. But when you practice not trying, not well, trying, 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 and then not trying, not trying, not trying, then it happens. So instead of identifying with whatever comes or identifying with a challenge, identifying with a circumstance or circumstances that we may not like, we can just experience it, turn towards it, move through it, and move, right? As long as we move through it, with it, then there's no stopping, there's no creating, there's no fortifying, or whatever we fortify gets broken down by the movement. Then I don't know, and it's okay. So all these experiences, when, when they come and go, all these experiences, the simple instruction is just don't follow. Don't ignore, don't reject, don't judge, don't love them, don't hate them. Remember, just stay away from loving and hating. When we talked about what that means. It's not, not loving, it's just not attaching. And when we practice this way, again and again, we do learn to lean into a deep state of observation, and then, and then we, be we begin to see what is obvious. We see, we experience. All experiences are, we experience that all experiences are in a constant state of flux. Right? If things are in constant state of flux and nothing stays the same for a second, then 
then it is, it is clear that what I think I am is not true. It becomes clear because the observation is teaching us that is not true. So nothing can be grasped, nothing can be rejected. And then it's not personal. It's not my pain or my happiness. You know, we speak about when somebody passes, right? We speak, with, we speak of it as a loss. And we, we may need to look at the way we use language sometimes. We, you know, we, we say we lost someone dear to us. But have we ever had that person? What does that mean? You know, when we share life with, you know, we know people and we have acquaintances and we and then they pass on so during the time that we were together on this planet was there any ownership we only lose what we have so we we there is that right by implication we're saying we've had them and now we don't we were fortunate, we can say that we were fortunate to walk with them for a while. Right? And that walk ended. And there is, with that, there is mourning, of course. There is sadness. But I think if we examine the, the way we meet that you know, when we lose somebody that's dear to us, we may be able to change the way we interact with people that are alive. We may have uh, deeper relationships, maybe less possessive. So something to, to look at. Anyway, the, the commentary goes on to say, this grass is the medicine and Manjushri uses it well. Now there's a story, this is from a story about Manjushri and Sudana who were talking about illness and Manjushri said to Sudana, go find something that does not have illness in it. Sudana went, searched for a while, came back, saying he couldn't find anything that does not have illness. And Madhushri then said, find me something that has medicine in it. And Sudana plucked a blade of grass from the ground, held it up and said, or held it up. And Madhushri said in response to that, this is a 16 foot body of a Buddha. This, anything, right? Anything you pick up is medicine. Anything we see, anyone we encounter is medicine. Also a source of perpetuating the disease.
right? Could be so from something small as somebody cutting you off on the road or your boss yelling at you or whatever. Of course, we don't see that as an opportunity to heal. We automatically perpetuate the disease and defend what we claim to be free of, that we want to be free of, right? We say we want to free ourselves from that, but not now, because now this person cut me off and I need some retribution here. Oh, my boss is too demanding and I feel really terrible about myself. So in this koan, Guishan asked Dao, where have you come from? And Dao said, I come from tending the sick. Now, Guishan and Dao were great Zen masters, ninth century China, both were disciples of Pai Chang. Although Dao ended up succeeding to Shitu later on, and Shitu is in our lineage, as you know, or you may not. So Dao says, I come from tending the sick. Now, where did he have to go to do that? Was it the infirmary? Was it the place or hospital or places where people were officially considered ill? Where are those who are sick? What are we talking about? No, compassionate action takes place in what we call the Buddha field. And where is the Buddha field? We have to ask. Where is it not? We can ask. Right? So at the moment that we are confronted with challenging situations or people, right there and then, we, are, we have the opportunity to tend to the sick or to tend to sickness. Because the way they may react to us and the way we react to their reaction, right, can be a great opportunity to see sickness in real time, in action. So how do we tend to that? And the footnote under that line says, the foremost of the field of blessing, blessings is not lacking. It never is lacking. So at challenging times, how do we feel? What do we do? How do we react? How do we deal, not so much with the other, as much as how do we deal with our reactivities to the other? We think that it's the other that is causing that in us. But is it? Right? So we practice by turning inwardly. We don't wait, right? We don't wait until it becomes very, very stormy and chaotic. We practice on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So then when things become chaotic, 
we have a little bit more a deeper understanding of ourselves. So we learn to work with our own anxieties when we get triggered. So Guishan inquired further and asked, how many people were sick? And Dao did not give a number. All he said is, there were the sick and the not sick. And then the footnote under that says, it turns out that you have a second moon. You have a second moon. So he said, there were the sick and the not sick. Right? He, he said it so we can examine something here. Because this is exactly the way we think about reality, about the people. There's the good, there's the bad, there's the before, there's the after. There's the deluded, there's the enlightened. Right? And of course there is before realization, after realization. But the cure can only be found where the sickness is. There is no other place to look for the cure or other time to look for the cure. So intense, when intense emotions arise in us, simultaneously the cure is arising. We just choose to focus on something else. So Guishan then said, the one who is not sick, isn't that you, ascetic Ji? Ji is short for Yuan Ji. That was other name. So in other words, what he's telling him, being a seasoned practitioner and being the one who has broken through your own entanglements, you have freed yourself, right? Are you not the one helping those who are stuck? So... Again, I want to go back to the commentary that we read last Sunday, if you remember from Musong. He brought up the perceived paradox between emptiness and compassion. If all things are empty of separate existence, then who is saving who? Who is healing who? And who is the one who is the one sick? Who is the one who is healthy? So in the commentary he said. Shunyata wisdom points to the root of things, their lack of own being, or Swabhava. Yet all the teachings of Buddha and other teachers also display compassion for all things in the world. How could that be, right? If there's nothing there, what would you be compassionate towards? This is a paradox that is resolved through the simultaneous practice of wisdom and compassion, akin to the necessarily simultaneous functioning of two wings of a bird. And this is a basic, basic template of the Bodhisattva model of Mahayana Buddhism. A Bodhisattva is active in the world, motivated by compassion for all beings, while being grounded firmly in the wisdom of shunyata or emptiness. So acts of compassion have no meaning in the sense of validating anything in the Bodhisattva or validating the Bodhisattva himself or herself. So it doesn't make a person. Acts of compassion are just 
acts of compassion and do not need a reason for their order or justification. They become truly acts of compassion when the Bodhisattva is simultaneously aware of or that these acts of compassion in samsara are just as empty as anything else, including the Bodhisattva herself. Buddhist traditions, including Zen, work creatively and gloriously with this paradox. This is what we do or need to do. To work gloriously with this paradox, which is not a paradox. Because you do not exist, you can do good. If you exist, sometimes you will do good and sometimes you will cause harm. Only when you do not exist, you will naturally act in compassionate ways. Not knowing that's, that this is compassion or that we need to call it compassion. So the compassion of the Bodhisattva is for the world of appearances in which deluded beings are caught in their own trap and experience varieties of dukkha. The Bodhisattva is motivated to find innumerable upaya or skillful means to address these varieties of dukkha, but never loses sight of the ultimate truth of emptiness of own being. So the Bodhisattva is never confused about the source of the world or of appearances. Through numerous upaya, the Bodhisattva can manifest equally numerous varieties of compassion, each appropriate to the dukkha-causing situation at hand without ever turning compassion yet into another conceptual category. So then, how many were sick? Are you not the, the one who is not sick? Right? So that is exposing the way we think. So and Dao said, sick or not sick has nothing to do with it at all. Nothing to do with it at all. That's made up. And I said, speak quickly, speak quickly. And Grishan ended this conversation by saying, even if I could say, even if I could say it, it would have no relation or connection to what we're talking about. And so for Bodhisattva, the action is most important. And the focus is on expressing compassionate action that arises naturally from the wisdom of unity. And that's why we shall end the conversation by saying that words have no relation to this grave matter of harm causing division. We have to keep in mind that He's not negating the usage of words here. As we said last Sunday, speech and silence can be effective when they are used in the service of wisdom. And they can also be the cause of further suffering when they are used in the service of our divisive mind fortifying ego delusion. So it's not what we say, it's how we say. 
Where is it coming from? What is it expressing? What am I defending? What am I vested in? What am I vested in? So we need to wrap it up. Maybe I'll uh, include this verse in another talk. So we, we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to how the disease manifests and we need to recognize or realize that it keeps coming up again and again and again. Whether it's here, other parts of the world, in our family, in our neighborhoods, You know, I grew up in a place that is, has been deeply, deeply divisive and war-torn for a very long time. And you would think that this would lead to some reckoning. But I'm not sure if you're following what's happening in Israel or not, but they have elected the most extreme right-wing government ever. I was born there, and I'm considered Jewish, whatever that means. So you would think that the Jews, right, going back to Israel, having a place to live, being persecuted, hated for so many years, would not act in the same way towards others. That's exactly what they're doing now. And what the way Israel is going, direction is going, anti-Semitism in the world will go up. And I think directly because of the way Israel is behaving. And then, of course, Jewish people are going to complain about that. We are hated. We look at the way you act. Should we? Should we examine what we do? Because you would think people that have been persecuted and chased and killed will realize yeah, this is coming. We should not act in such ways. But this government is rejecting Arabs, rejecting LGBTQ, strengthening hatred, and complaining about hatred. I have many friends who would not want me to, would not want to hear me saying that, and family too. But this is real. And we have to reckon, we have to see that our actions are producing what we complain about. So anti-Semitism will rise. And of course, we are not going to blame anybody else other than those who are not Jews. So we have to examine. And we have to take full responsibility. Thank you.